loveless for the rest of my days until you came. Now I receive all that you've done for me. You stepped down from your glory to prove you were for me. Carpenter's Way. Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning. You are amazing, a God who's unchanging, always unfailing, the beginning and the end. You are amazing.
are God before there was time, and you are God right here in our lives, and you will always be my God. The mountain trembles and the sea stands still, and the from this side to this side and over here and here and then some of you are sitting there we're going to attack you one of these weeks 
But we are so glad you're here this morning. It's good to have you here. I know we got people watching online. So welcome to Carpenter's Way, whether it's in this room or on the uh, digital world. But uh, we're thankful you're here. Today, man, I always get nervous when I have a text that's so important because I'm, I usually mess them up. So you need to pay special attention this morning to what the Lord says. It's going to be a great time in God's Word. I mean, it's just going to be a good time. We're going to be in John 3 uh, where... Uh, Jesus says, you know, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. It's that text. But you need to hear this this morning in context because it is, uh, well, baseball started this week, right? And I know a lot of you, it's funny because when the Astros are losing, most of you don't cheer like that. But uh, um, but uh, baseball started this week and this whole text, and I'm, I'm going to put some context to it by saying this. This whole conversation, Jesus' response to Nicodemus is a brushback pitch. It is a, it is a hold on, buddy. I'm going to explain this to you really quick. And so it's a, it's a great text. When you hear John 3.16 in its context, you're going to go, whoa, that is, wow, that's, oh, man. Because I, I, I did it all week. So uh, thanks for being here. If you're watching online, stick with us. Grab your Bible. We're going to start at the end of John 2. And uh, we are in the middle of a study right now called Who Is This Man? And we're basically using all four Gospels to teach us who Jesus Christ is. Uh, we're doing it in context, so we're working section by section. We have, uh, this is I think our ninth week in this study, and we're all the way into John chapter 2, so we are moving along. So, yeah, some of you went, oh, good. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, we're glad you're here. We want to encourage you uh, this morning. Our hope, honestly, my hope, as much as I want you to like uh, us and me and this whole thing, we want you to really fall in love with Jesus because uh, he is the one, Jesus Christ is the one that can save you. He's the only one. So uh, that's why we got his name on stage because we don't want you, you know, when you, if you're visiting with us and you're wondering what this is all about, it's about Jesus. That, that's all we got. That's all we got for you. So all the other stuff is noise, but we are so glad that you're with us. And if you're visiting with us, we, we want to, uh, I'd love to shake your hand. I'd love to meet you. Uh, immediately following the service, I'll be up here to pray with people. But uh, there is a table, a welcome table out there in the uh, welcome area. You go out, and it's right out against that wall there. There's a big wood thing behind it. Uh, my wife will be there after the service and would love to shake your hand. I'll be there as soon as I can um, to talk with you. If you have any questions, we would love to answer those for you. Thanks for being with us today, and thanks for watching online. We, we pray that God blesses you having been with us today. Um, having said that, let me highlight a, a few things if you'll open your worship guide. Uh, we have, for those of you who have been visiting a while and want to learn more about Carpenter's Way, every quarter we have what we call New Members Class at Carpenter's Way 101. It isn't just for those who want to become members, but this is a way to meet every one of our, every person on our leadership team, to have all of the questions answered doctrinally, practically, programmatically. Uh, in Sunday morning, this starts at 9.30 and goes till about 11.45. It's in the library, and there's child care going on, but we would encourage you to join that if you're interested in more information on Carpenter's Way. Our goal is not to have a huge membership. Our goal is to have a deep membership of people who want to know God better and who want to grow in their relationship with the Lord, studying the Scriptures. That's what we do. And if that interests you and you want to find out why we do what we do or why we don't do what we don't do, man, that's a great place for you to, uh, to jump in. That is going to be on April 14th. That's in a couple weeks. So uh, please take note of that and plan to join us. Uh, we'll have a little breakfast for you. And, and again, it's, it's a great chance to learn more stuff. Uh, going on. As you know, Easter's coming. And uh, so that means we celebrate. This is, 
Christmas feels bigger, but it is not as big as Easter for the believer. Resurrection Sunday, it is our hope. It is the validation of all of the things that Jesus said he was. It is when we celebrate, and we are going to do that again this year. Uh, just to give you an idea, we'll have it in the worship guide next week. But that whole weekend is a celebration on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock to 3.30. We're going to have our good, our, our good Friday service where we have communion together. It's 30 minutes. It's from 3 to 3.30. That's so if you, if you work through that afternoon, you can still sneak out and maybe take a late lunch. But it is a reflective time. We sing. We look at the scriptures. It's Like I said, it's about the, the time in the word together and singing is about 20 to 25 minutes. And then we'll have communion up here for those of you who'd like to take it. And uh, it takes us into a reflective weekend, and then Sunday morning we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And it's going to be a great morning, Resurrection Sunday. Um, Nancy Mize is working on a sketch. The, the drama team is working on that stuff. Uh, Chad is writing all original music for that morning. And it's, I, just, I just lied to you. I'm just, it, it's, a lot of it is. But we're, we want you to be here. We want you to bring your family. There's lots of folks, there's lots of folks that don't go to church, and we want them to, to see us celebrate the risen Lord. So grab somebody and bring them in. And, uh, the service is, is just a little over an hour, and we don't have Bible study that day, so you can go out and take them out to lunch. But make it part of a ministry opportunity for family, friends, neighbors. Everybody is welcome um, to, to worship our Lord and to know Him. So that's upcoming. Uh, the rest of the stuff that you can, you know, kind of read through. Men, we have our men's hangout uh, promotional in there. It's, it's, it's time. It's that time of the year. It's the end of April. So uh, please take note of that. There are student camps coming up, the information in there. If you have any questions, you can contact uh, the, the church office, and we'd be glad to head you in the right direction. I'm going to ask at this time for our ushers to come forward for our offering. Um, for those of you who don't go to church, I, I just want to explain. This is part of how we worship the Lord. This is part of what we do, and thanks for all that he's given us. Uh, it does go, uh, the cynicism of our nature, it does go to pay our bills. It goes to take care of our staff. It goes to missionaries that we support across the globe that are telling people about Jesus Christ. Having said that, if this is not your home church, we ask you not to give. Just pass the plate as it comes by. This is for those of us who attend here regularly, but uh, this is part of our worship to the Lord as, as we thank him. Um, and uh, we're going to pray. I, I want to highlight one more thing. And that is next Sunday, they're, they're going to start, we think, this week doing some demolition for our new bathrooms. Yes, a throne for every saint. Um, anyway, but uh, we're, the process, so that means next Sunday, <laughs> you're going to think about that in an hour and go, I don't think, did he really say that? Um, but we are, uh, so real quick, the Seekers class, starting next week, not this week, is going to end up in the overflow room. Clay Alverson's class that's in the overflow room is going to come over here to where Robert Grimes' class is. Robert Grimes' class is going to meet in here. So that'll start next week, but just get yourself charged up, talk to each other, and it'll be chaotic next week, and I'll be the guy sitting in the welcome area laughing. <laughs> you guys having a rough week out there? That was funny. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for allowing us to gather here together today um, to study your word. And, and this is... Uh, this is a hugely important text. This is uh, why you came. Uh, everybody has their own idea why you came, to fix Judaism, to get rid of bad leadership, to overthrow Rome and make, make uh, the Hebrew nation the predominant nation in the world. Everybody had their own ideas. But only your followers understood that you could save their souls. And so I pray, Father, that as we, as we live in the Bible Belt, that we would not be more Christian than we are followers of Jesus, that we would not be unsaved believers, 
that we would be a people who seek you no matter where you lead us. That's a, that's a hard, self-deprecating truth, but it's the truth that you demand. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in a very uniquely personal and special way. And I'm going to share some things that may go against the flow of thought, but it isn't what I believe or what I teach that matters. It's what's true. And so I pray your Holy Spirit will divide the truth with uh, Mark Wilkie-oriented thoughts. And it is our prayer, Father, that your Spirit would transform us into what you want us to be, not what we think we need to be. We love you, Jesus. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In your holy name we pray, amen. You want to stand and worship with us? You're more than welcome. I know what it's like to try to earn his love. And I know what it's like to feel you're not enough. Running from the sin that you can't hide. And the guilt you feel trying to sleep at night. He came and found me at my very worst. He gave me life that I did not deserve. And I am forgiven now by His good grace. Because of His mercy, I'll never be the same. Oh, this Shout! 
God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. If you're not already standing, why don't you stand and sing this old hymn with us? Great is our faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with me. Great. 
Jesus Christ, you are my story. You're my everything. You are my glory, my God and my King. You are my rock and you never change. You can clap if you want. That's pretty amazing. I think Chad, Katie, I think, I think you guys could probably do that in front of crowds. Yeah, you guys are pretty good. I, I have a hard time. I know I've said this several times, but every time Katie sings up here and she's just singing like that, I just thank the Lord for the privilege of the young, the young men and young women who grow up in this church that we get to disciple. It is such a privilege. And I know, I know, gosh, I know what it's like to sit out there and I know it's like, oh, somebody, you know, they need help in children or they need help in student or, man, this, what God asks us to do as believers together is so significant. You're tired of the news, you're tired of what's going on, give them Jesus and disciple, pour into people's lives. Thank you guys this morning. What a, I, you know, I, I am so ministered to by the music. Uh, to listen to you, sometimes I stop, I'm up front, so you guys are screaming down the back of my neck, but man, you sing good. And what a blessing. It gets me excited to get up here and preach, and that's one of the dangers of preaching. I get too excited and I leave the notes, so... I'm going to try really hard because this is an important text. I mean, they're all important, but some are important with capital letters on them and underlined. And, and uh, so we're going to start by praying together. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask my brothers and sisters, those of you who know Jesus, I'm going to ask you to pray for me. I'm a fallen guy, and I'm asked to speak about eternal truths that I don't even understand. So will you pray for me that God would choose my words this morning? Now, I want you to pray for yourselves, that your ears would be tuned in, not just to verses you're familiar with, but a context that, that really uh, tweaks how we hear a verse. Ask God to tune your ears to the truths of these verses. Now, for those of you who are searching for truth, you're not sure Jesus Christ is the answer you're not sure what it is, or maybe you're a part of a group that doesn't believe in Jesus, wherever you're at, if you are not convinced, if you are not a child of God, or if you're not walking with God, or if you're not, would you just ask God to speak to you this morning? Even if you don't believe he's there, just challenge him. If you're real, then this morning I want you to talk to him. Prove yourself. Lord Jesus, we commit this next 45 minutes to you and ask you to speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Jesus' very new group of followers, or disciples as we call them, come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with them. I have no doubt that they were excited about this year's celebration and what was fixing to happen because they had just seen their rabbi in the recent few weeks turn water into wine. After coming back from being in the wilderness and tempted by Lucifer, Jesus starts picking his disciples, and immediately the first thing he does is he takes them to his family town where they have a wedding of his family, friends, and his neighborhood, and his community, and they run out of wine, and his mom asks him to, turn or asks him to take care of that problem, and he does in a way that nobody could have imagined. He turns water into wine. And it tells us in that text that the disciples at that moment began to believe that he was who he said. 
From that point, Jesus takes the disciples to be with his family in Capernaum for about a week. They, they take a family vacation, if you will, and they spend some time together. We don't know how long I pick a week because it sounds like a right vacation time. But they go to Capernaum to spend some time together. And as soon as it's over, it tells us that Jesus led the disciples into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, which is what we looked at last week. They've been with him about a month at the time of Passover. And everything that he did seemed to confirm that he was who they hoped he was. Entering Jerusalem, Jesus led them right into the temple grounds where they expected to buy the religious ceremonial items that they would need for this next week's celebration of Passover. Honestly, they had an idea of what was about to happen because probably it is reasonable to believe most of these guys were searching for God. Most of them knew God and probably had spent their lives going to Jerusalem on the Passover. So they had done this a number of years, each of them most likely. What they would do during that week was they would find a place to rent, or a family that was willing to take them in to celebrate the Passover meal. They'd go into the temple grounds and they would buy the Passover icons. They would buy some sort of animal that was required in order for the Passover uh, a, a, a sacrifice. They would buy the needed things to clean uh, where they were from the yeast, representing sin. They would buy all the things that they needed in the temple area. They would pay their temple tax, which was required by every Hebrew. They had done it dozens of times before, most likely, and so they expected that they knew what would happen when they went into the temple grounds. They went in following their new rabbi, believing that he was going to purchase the needed items. They'd slaughter the animal. During the next few days, they would prepare it. This was going to be the best Passover week any of them had ever experienced. So they head over to the temple when John 2.14 takes place. In the temple area, he saw the merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at the tables exchanging foreign money. Some of you are thinking, didn't you preach this last week? Yes, but context matters. Jesus made a whip from some ropes, and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers, coins all over the floor, and he turned over the tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Not what the disciples had expected of that day. And their hearts went from excitement to confusion and, well, something probably you have felt a dozen times being a follower of Jesus. And each of them immediately in verse 17 tells us, remember this prophecy from the Scriptures that says passion for God's house will consume them, him. Just as had been happening since they began to follow Jesus, as they looked on as Jesus did the unexpected which he always does, and not just for the disciples, but in your life as well. In the life of the Hebrew nation, he doesn't take them directly into the promised land. He takes them the long 40-year journey. Jesus did the unexpected, and they are each immediately reminded of Psalm 69.9 that said that the Messiah would be consumed with a passion for God's house. And again, even in the weirdness that was Jesus or being with Jesus, they are reminded that he fulfills the prophecy of who the anointed one would be. And they're also reminded, most likely, of Malachi that said the Messiah, Messiah would cleanse the temple from what it had become. Even this shocking moment confirmed the identity of this man that they had each dropped everything to follow. As you can imagine, the temple leader, leaders were very upset. Verse 18 says, but the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? 
If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, you go ahead and destroy this temple. And I added words in there because that's the emphasis of the Greek. He's instructing them to destroy the temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. What, they exclaimed? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And if you want to hear more on that, you can log into last week's archive message, and we talked about that last week. This was a very intense moment, and I don't want you to forget, we have a tendency to just look at Jesus and the people he's talking to. I want you to think about what the disciples felt, because it may be familiar with a feeling you've had being a follower of Jesus. They're kind of standing back going, um... Much of the Hebrew world is here. They looked around and saw that the place was packed. People were watching as Jesus faced off with those in leadership that the crowds had come to listen to. The crowds had come to to ask these people to bless their Passover celebration. This was a big deal, and Jesus is squaring off with them. It was a mess. Animals were running amok. There's money all over the place. And the Pharisees are confronting Jesus publicly. The disciples must have thought, this is absolutely out of control. And now they know this was a Passover they would never forget. In fact, in John 2.22, it tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed both the Scriptures and what Jesus had said. I want you to notice that there's two things that the disciples looked to for truth. It was Jesus' words as validated by the Scriptures. Your religious experience does not determine what is true. You can have religious experiences that are driven by Satan. The truth is, does it, uh, does it measure up to the truth of the Scriptures as well? Know the Scriptures. Know the Scriptures or be deceived. Know the Scriptures. Just because you want something doesn't mean it's true. Doesn't mean you should have it. I, I'm sorry. But we live in a world where you get what you want and you can be what you want and you can still love Jesus. And that's kind of where this takes us today. You might imagine that Jesus and the disciples would leave Jerusalem after that day, after all that took place, but they didn't. In verse 23 to 25, which I didn't talk about last week, but you talked about in your Bible study groups, it says because of the miraculous signs, plural, that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, referring to that week, many... You're about to get your, it's about to get weird, okay? So take a deep breath. You got to listen this morning. We're not snorkeling, we're scuba diving. Many began to trust him, but Jesus didn't trust them. So some of your Bibles, take a breath. Some of your Bibles say uh, commit themselves. There are different ways that the English translators translate it. Uh, and remember, it's the Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic that, that, that matter the most. The reason they're translated in other words is because it's really hard to get across the sense of what's going on here. The Greek is the exact same word about how they felt about Jesus. They began to believe in him, but he didn't believe in them. That's what matters. This thing that they felt towards Jesus, he did not feel towards them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. Remember that John, one of these new disciples, is watching all of this. He's writing this for us. John is recollecting what happened that day, and he's setting us up for what we're about to learn. Looking back at this, it made sense to him, but that week of that year, during that first month of Jesus' ministry, people at this Passover were beginning to believe that he was actually God's sent one. But he was not responding to them the way these disciples would have expected him to. 
He didn't just welcome these new believers with open arms. He didn't just go plant a church. But it says that he didn't believe in their belief because he knew what was in their hearts. In other words, the Passover crowds were claiming to believe that he was who he claimed to be, that he was sent from God. Why did they believe it? Because he validated and proved it to them through the miraculous signs that he was performing. But Jesus didn't believe that they were true believers, as they claimed, because he knew their nature. He knew what was in their hearts. In other words, Jesus understood what was really in their desire of him and in their belief of him. Not that he... um, We'll get there in a moment. People jump on bandwagons. It's human nature to like good, rebellious message, especially if you're frustrated with the leaders that you have. We love the underdog, especially if he or she is powerful, because they think that they will lead us to the promised land we've been praying for. Jesus, unfortunately for these believers, didn't come to do their thing. He came to do his own thing. He was here on a timeline, on a plan, by the direction of his Father and the Trinity as a whole. He came to accomplish something. He came to save people from their sins, not their felt personal or nationalistic crisis. More on that in a few moments. But I told you a few moments ago that I believe, and you can have a different opinion, but I believe that what Jesus does here in the next section in John chapter 3 is a brushback pitch. You know what that is even if you're not a baseball fan because it's one of the fun things to watch. I'm willing to admit that the reason I like NASCAR is the crashes. And you have to admit that it's fascinating to watch a guy lean over the plate and have a pitcher put a 95-mile-an-hour fastball right under his chin. We don't want to see him hit with the ball, but it is fun to watch him hit the dirt. It's fun to watch the first base coach run out and tackle the pitcher. You admitted it. It's interesting. It breaks up that long game that we call baseball. And I believe that what Jesus does here with Nicodemus, as recorded by John, is just that. In fact, I want to remind you that as we start this, that the chapter breaks and the verse breaks are not ordained from heaven. They were added so that we could find our places in Scripture and to help us with our study. But I want to throw out there that what John does here in the next few verses is actually give you an example of what he means in a very difficult couple verses by they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them because he knew their hearts. If you listen carefully to the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, who Jesus is going to call the greatest teacher of his time. In other words, He is the man, and I'm going to make the case, and I'm already preaching ahead of myself, but I want you to see where we're going so you can follow it in the Scripture. Jesus is going, uh, Nicodemus is actually going to refer to we. I believe that Nicodemus is coming as the greatest teacher of his time to figure out Jesus, this one that they all now believe was sent from God, to discover his doctrine and his theology and see how it matched up with theirs so he could go back and unify this powerful supernatural man with the strong arm of the Jewish church, which is the synagogue leaders. And Jesus is going to answer that directly and yet indirectly. So here we go. John chapter 3, verse 1. Keep the context in mind. 
Though people were beginning to believe in him because of his miracles, he did not believe in them because he knew their hearts. For instance, I'm adding that, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader and a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Jew's Jew. He was referred to by Jesus as the respected leader of the Jew, teacher of the Jews in, in verse 10 of chapter 3. That is very significant. In the Greek, it's not saying a respected leader, but the. It is reasonable from that phrase to believe that Nicodemus was the teacher of teachers, that he was the guy that the teachers looked to for insight when they couldn't figure out the Scriptures. He, was to, he will discover, or we will discover, later in his life that Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the legal council of 70 people. Now, you understand that at this point, the nation of Israel is under Roman domination. Well, there weren't enough military and police forces in the Roman nation to keep control of every family and every community and every individual. So what they did was when they took, they, they ruled different nation groups, and they would come in, and they would try to establish some sort of leadership of individuals within that group of people that will keep their own people under control. And to a degree, they would allow them to rule their people. You know this because the Sanhedrin are the group of people that demanded to Pilate Jesus to turn him over for his crucifixion. But Pilate was the only one with the authority to say, kill him. Rome had to give permission to kill a man, but they didn't have, give, have to give permission to beat a man. They didn't have to give permission to, to arrest a man. So there was this, this uh, Sanhedrin where the bridge between the Hebrew people and the Roman people that didn't like each other at all. This 70-numbered body, body of, of, of leadership is, uh, actually bridged that gap, and he was one of those people. He was a Pharisee, meaning that he lived his own life by the strict mosaic, strictest form of Mosaic laws, and he sat as judge over Jews that did not. Just to make it clear, though, whenever you hear the word Pharisee, if you grew up in the church, the hair on the back of your neck go up and your face growls and you go, those dogs, those whitewashed tombs. Let me be clear. Not all of them were hypocrites. There were some seeking truth. And Nicodemus approaches Jesus as one of those seeking truth. Verse 2, after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Or some of your versions say that God has sent you. Three things that stood out to me in, in these, this verse. Number one, you've got to remember that chapter breaks are not inspired. John is telling us a story in order to teach us a lesson that begins with the end of the Passover feast where Jesus turns the tables. And he begins it by saying, not every, all, they were beginning to believe him because of his miraculous signs, but, not every, but Jesus didn't believe in them because he knew what was in their heart. This is the continuation of that. Secondly, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And I know you guys know this story. And, you, and, and if we were to divide this room up into people who've heard this, one of the first things we do is we dialogue on why he came tonight. Just to be clear, it never tells us why he came at night. Some of you were taught that the reason he came at night is because he was embarrassed and didn't want to get caught. Some of you were taught that he came at night because that's when the crowds were gone and he interrupted Jesus' rest in the evening so he could have a meaningful conversation. I believe it's the second. I believe that he came at night not because he was afraid or he wouldn't say, many of us, we, he's representing somebody that could have joined him during the day. 
But, the, but uh, the, he comes at night because the crowds are gone and he can have a meaningful theological conversation with Jesus. The third thing. He and those who have been watching Jesus this week perform supernatural miraculous signs. They have become convinced, though Nicodemus himself and those he represents, that Jesus is in fact sent from God. To finally understand what is going on here between Jesus and Nicodemus, you've got to keep that context. These people, John tells us, were unsaved believers. Take a breath. That's a weird statement. Unsaved believers. That should not be a freak out thing in your thinking because you've heard of them. For instance, James chapter 2, verse 19, says the demons believe that God is one and they tremble. Unsaved believers. Lucifer himself watched Jesus arrested, died, and rise again. He's not a believer. He's not saved. He is a believer. And I'd like to show you in John chapter 12 this weird phrase, John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. Look at these verses with me. Many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Now I'd like to remind you of Jesus' teaching that if you love them more than me, you won't have any part of me. Unsaved believers. There are many of us who live in the Bible Belt who wonder how people can go to church their whole life or go to VBS as a child and never be transformed by this. Unsaved believers. It's not a question of whether or not you believe Jesus is sent from God. The question is, Jesus gets into that. That's what this text is about. In verse 2 of John 3, Jesus, uh, he, he says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I'd like to add almost cutting him off. Nothing that Nicodemus has just said, Jesus addresses in this next verse. Nothing. In fact, he almost feels to me, as I've been studying it, that Jesus gets right to the point that Nicodemus wants to take him. Nicodemus is not there to bow the knee to Jesus. He's there to negotiate a relationship between the we and the him. Because the crowd are believing in him, even Nicodemus and the we. Are you following me so far? Jesus isn't going to waste his time. Somebody asked me this morning to make something clear, and this is going to be very hard to hear, and you're going to have to think about it, and you're going to want to send emails pushing back on this to jeff at cwbc.org. That joke isn't getting the laugh it used to. Go ahead and send it to Chad then. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that. Okay, here it goes. I don't know exactly how to say this. That's why I'm struggling with it. Jesus, in our culture, when you read his sayings to people, when he pushes back, he seems uncaring. Um, the word used to me this morning is Jesus is a bit of a jerk. Take a deep breath. They're right. 
Jesus isn't playing games. The reason I want to go through the life of Jesus from Scripture is because there are going to be an enormous amount of things that make you go, if you're going to build a church, that's not the way to build it. That's what's happening here. That's what happens when Jesus turns the tables over. That's what the disciples are thinking. I thought we were going to build a kingdom here. I thought we were going to do some big stuff. I thought we were going to get as many followers as we could. And if you and I were running things, not only would we not have turned the tables over, we would have given Easter uh, eggs out and turned it into a party that had something to do with Jesus but isn't focused on Jesus. This is the one thing, all right, and again, it's chat at cwbc.org, that I think Satan has effectively done in the Southern culture. He has married paganism with the most amazing event in all of history, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has nothing to do with spring. It has nothing to do with eggs. It has nothing to do with bunnies. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and anyone who wants to be saved can come to him. And we have turned Christmas and Easter, allowed it to be turned into festive holidays, and, and look, we do it, we like it, I, I like all that. But it should be for every hour we talk about Jesus, it should be three minutes of chocolate. It's the opposite. It's like, hey, let's go to church on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection, and then we're going to spend three more days celebrating chocolate bunnies. I mean, at some point we have to stand back and go, what are we doing? This changes our eternity. Unless we don't want it to. That's the struggle going on here. And Jesus takes a surgical knife and he goes right at Nicodemus who is praising him, coming like you and I would come. Good teacher, we know you're sent from God. We accept the miracles are not demonic. Wow, you are something. And Jesus responds, replies, and the Greek is intense again. He's replying to that comment. There's no break here. There's no other conversation that takes place. This is the next thing heard by the disciples. And they must have gone, here we go again. I mean, the first month was pretty good. We turned water to wine. We spent time with Mary and the boys. It was a great few weeks. Then we go, and I, he just lost his head. He's probably tired. He came into the temple. He turned his tables over. Well, what Jesus says to Nick right now is like, Wow. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you need to, hold your, you need to buckle your seatbelt. Uh, some of your verses, if you use it in the King James, says, verily, verily. It's not as meaningful. I think I'm going to start using that because nobody uses it. Verily, verily. When I want to say something important, like announcement. Verily, verily, men, you need to be at the men's event. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You want to know truth? You come here to figure out what I believe? You want to know what I think about the relationship between you, me, God, and Judaism? I tell you the truth. And the truth is, unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now again, don't think like Americans here. Think like a Jew. Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Nicodemus, a sincerely seeking man, had to go, I thought we were the kingdom of God. What are you talking about? The disciples had to go, what? I mean, that statement is what they wanted. You see, Nicodemus was coming on behalf of the we because all of the we thought Jesus was here to set up a kingdom. Everybody, including the disciples. 
They all think Jesus is going to come up to set up their dream kingdom. New Moses, better Moses, better version of that guy. Wow, is this awesome. And you're going to hear this as we go through the teachings of Jesus and the challenges of them. You think you're better than Moses? They, start, they always start by greasing the skids, if you will. Jesus, we know you're sent from God. Jesus, you're a good man. Jesus, we've heard your teachings, and they're, pro, they're, they're interesting. And Jesus always responds with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And then, then they respond by saying, you think you're better than Moses? You see, the schizophrenia, that is Judaism, which I would say is also Christianity, but the schizophrenia that is Judaism is, we need Jesus and all of his supernatural power, but we've got what we want in all the spiritual stuff. That's schizophrenia. We like you. We like your miracle cir circus, but we really don't want you to upset the carton too much. And Jesus does with this. This is what a spiritual brushback pitch looks like. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, it's good that you're convinced that I'm sent from God. However, you've got to be born again, or as the Greek really says, born from above, or you'll never see God's kingdom. I am certain this is not the response that Nicodemus expected. And I am equally certain that the disciples are thinking, this guy has no idea how to make friends and influence people. Verse 4, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? And by the, word, by the way, exclaimed Nicodemus means he's pretty shocked. What are you talking about? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? That's sarcasm. He's not questioning. It's sarcasm. Jews do this all the time. I wish I could get you in a big bus. Growing up in San Diego, we had large Jewish communities, and this is how they talk. It seems unloving, but it's direct, and I envy it. I like the direct. But he's responding with sarcasm. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can ever enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can rep uh, reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. This passage is so weirdly twisted and used by every fringe Christian group who, want to, who is attempting to prove their view on baptism for salvation, speaking in tongues or other unbiblical secondary doctrines, that it's nuts. This is not complicated. Jesus is talking about physical birth, water, and spiritual birth, the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Because that's exactly how Nicodemus and Jesus' phrase continues. He actually explains it in a parallel explanation in the very same verse. Verses 5 and 6, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water, which I'm saying is physical birth, and the spirit, spiritual birth, or being born again. Why am I convinced of this? Because of verse 6, humans can replicate, reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So if you take all the weird doctrine thrown around here and you put it aside and you took those two verses, he's, he's comparing water with physical birth and the Holy Spirit with spiritual birth. It's not complicated. And one of the things that, that bad theologians like to do is twist up meanings or add meanings to things that you would never think. If you were reading this without any previous knowledge, if you had been here, you would have known, just like Nicodemus and the disciples knew, that he was talking about being born of a woman, being born of water, what happens before a person's born, everybody knows the water breaks, and spiritual birth, which he had no idea what Jesus was talking about. No idea. And he goes on to say 
Verse 7, so don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind, and, and, and he says, look, I, I get it. I get that you don't get this. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it wants, though. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. And on the wind thing, I can explain it now because technology has taught us. You know what causes wind, right? Leaves shaking. That's what causes wind. Why? Because I've never seen the wind blow where the leaves weren't shaking. I know it's the heat of the earth and the atmosphere and all that stuff. But the truth is, the next question is, is what causes the wind to start? Well, it's the heat of the earth and the atmosphere coming together and it starts making wind. What causes that? You may be here this morning and not a believer in Christ and the biggest hurdle is believing in creation. You believe in a big bang. Who cares? Where'd the gas come from? Pastor Mark, it has to be a seven day. It doesn't have to be anything except created by God according to Hebrews chapter one. God is the creator. At some point, you're gonna come face to face with either an alien or Jehovah. And you can spend your whole life trying to disprove everything, and you can spend your whole life wishing it wasn't God and it was some alien from a different planet. But when you die, an eighth of a second after, you will come face to face with that alien, and his name is Jehovah God. And he will look at you and he will weep, and he will say, depart from me, I gave you every opportunity to be redeemed. You can't save yourself. The Jews can't save themselves. They know they can't save their nation, but they do think they can save themselves. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is brushing him back going, you came here to negotiate a national vision with me. You came here to ask me who I am. You came here to marry us on behalf of all your people, Nick. Well, I've got news for you. I'm here to build a kingdom that you can only enter if you're born again, not if you're Jewish. This is not an inconsistent message because in uh, Galatians, Paul talks about it. It is not the circumcision of the flesh or being a child of Abraham that saves you, but the circumcision of the soul. It's being redeemed. It's admitting you're a sinner and he's the Savior. It's putting all of your eggs in his basket. It's believing that the answer to all spiritual questions are Jesus Christ, not us figuring them out. Jesus is saying, you, understand physical, you, uh, you don't understand physical birth. You do understand that it gives... Birth, physical life gives birth to physical life. And you find it surprising that the Holy Spirit causes spiritual rebirth? You don't understand the wind. You're not going to understand the process of spiritual rebirth. Just know for me, this is how a person gets to the kingdom of God. That's the bottom line. That's all that matters. He or she must be born of the Spirit as well as from a human. You got to be human. You got to be spiritual reborn. And if you think that Nicodemus gets it, Look at verse 9. How are these things possible, he asks. Which I would like to point out, Jesus just said to him, you're never going to understand this any more than you understand the wind. You see, what Jesus is pointing to is himself. He's saying, I didn't come here to explain it to you. There's no negotiating with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. There's none of that. There's just me. That's it. And I'm not even asking you to understand me. I'm not asking you to understand spiritual rebirth. I'm here to tell you, Nick, that I'm not going to negotiate truth with you. I'm simply going to tell you that unless a man, I know you want the kingdom of God to come, well, I'm here to tell you that it will, but only those who have been born from above will ever see it. And Nicodemus' response is, how is that possible after Jesus just saying, you're not going to get this? We really want to know, don't we? I, I am by biblical default, conservative when it comes to salvation. I believe when Jesus says in John 14 that only those my Father has drawn will come to me, that he meant that. 
That has offended, in my time in East Texas over the last 13 years, an enormous number of people who eventually say something like, I refuse to believe in a God who does things like that, which is your right. And eventually they leave. I have heard the term Calvin and Arminian more times in East Texas than I have in the other, what have we been here, 13 years, and we've been doing this 33 years. I got to tell you something. It is so weird down here in the South that people are obsessed with Calvin and Arminius, two guys that didn't even define their own theology as it's defined today. I just want to be clear. God is not a Calvinist and he's not an Arminian. He's God. And I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian either. I just know what the Scripture teaches and I stick with that. And what are the facts on that? Whosoever will may come. So come to him. But you don't believe that anybody can. Who cares what I believe? If you come to him, you're part of the elect. And if you do not, you're not. Well, how do I know if I'm part of the elect? Nicodemus, stop it. It's not the point. The point is, he's God, we're not, and we're not okay with that. The, the evangelical church divides over tongues. Who cares? I have never spoken in tongues. But I have, I am filled with the Spirit. And if God wants me to speak in tongues, I'll speak in tongues. And if God wants me to interpret it, I'll interpret it. But it's God's gift. And to be told that I'm not saved because I haven't spoken in tongues is not yours to say. And I want to make it clear. There are people in this church who absolutely believe in angelic prayer language in their closet. And I say, good for you. Praise God for that gift. Enjoy it. But don't declare the rest of us unsaved because we haven't, and we won't declare you unsaved because you have. When we get to heaven, we'll giggle over who those who got it and those who don't, and nobody's going to care because it's all about being born from above. And the church has boggled itself down into how much water do you need over your head in order to be truly a baptized person. Does sprinkling work or immersion or how much immersion? Do you have to baptize once forward, twice back? Does it have to be in the Baptist baptismal? Does it have to be in a lake, a pond, in the Jordan River? Does it give you a special anointing? If you're baptized, should it be in the name of Jesus or should it be in the name of God? Should it be in the name of all three at the same time or should nobody talk at all? What are we doing? Exactly what, the, what, the, uh, what these guys do. It's exactly the same. He comes to Jesus to negotiate the we. Hey, tell us about you. Tell us more about you. And Jesus gets to the point. I know what you want to know. How about the kingdom of God? Well, I'm here to tell you that unless you're born of the flesh, human, and of the spirit, you won't see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. You don't understand that? What makes you think you're going to understand this? Jesus says this to Nicodemus, and he's perplexed, and he says, how can these things be possible, he asked. Jesus replied in verse 10, this is where it gets awesome. You are a respected Jewish leader. Actually, the Greek is better. You are the respected Jewish teacher. In other words, you're the guy. Everybody comes to you, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and he have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned except for the Son of Man who has come down from heaven. Well, in case you're not paying attention, this is a rebuke for Nicodemus for continuing to ask Jesus about things Jesus just told him he didn't and wouldn't understand, and it didn't matter. All that matters is what you do with Jesus. 
I'd like to say this, especially in this time of history. There needs to come a point in every one of our spiritual lives that we decide that Jesus is God, that He is who He claimed to be, that the only one who could solve our sin problem is Him, and simply trusting and following and obeying Him, even if we don't understand, is all that's involved in a faithful, healthy Christian life. It feels like we continually, as Christians, put Jesus on trial as to whether we have chosen the right guy to give control of our lives to. The church is going through another time on the role of Scripture in the lives of the believer, and especially as it relates to homosexuality, and in the past it's been about what we do with Indians or what we do with people of color. We've, we've continually done stupid things in the name of figuring it all out and answering all the questions when Scripture is very clear. Cast off the sin that easily entangles. Put your eyes on the back of my head and follow me, even if it's off a cliff. But we don't like that because we're free-thinking individuals. We, we're dem, we're democrat, democracy. We are a rep... rep <laughs> I'm going to try this one more time because I know I'm going to get an email, or Jeff will get an email on this. Um, we are a democratic republic. In other words, we hire people to go to represent us, and when they don't represent us perfectly, we get mad at them. It's, we're not a democracy. Don't let them fool you. We are a representative democracy. We send people to represent us and, and not represent us. We send people that we believe in their vision to do the best job that they can. That's why what you vote matters on what you know about the people you vote for. Uh, democracy means that we vote on every little thing, and that's not how this country works, no matter what this generation is telling you. Or New York people, this is not how things work here in our country. That's chaotic. I'd like to add that neither is the kingdom of God. It's not a democracy. In fact, I'd like to say that it's not even a representative democracy. It's not a congregationally run thing. It's not a Hebraic run thing. It's a theocracy. I'm God. You're not. I choose to inform you at some level on some things, and the rest you're never going to understand. You're going to follow. Well, I want to know. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus, and he says, I've explained human things and you don't understand them. What makes you think if I explain supernatural things? Verse 13 is the point. No one's ever gone to heaven and returned except for the Son of Man who came down from heaven. If you believe that the Son of Man, Jesus, came down from heaven, it should be enough to trust Him with the things that we don't understand. After all, He is God and we're not, right? After watching Him, after listening to Jesus, which is what I want to do in this study, if you're not convinced, this is the study for you. If you are convinced, this is the study for you. Because there comes a point when we are convinced that Jesus is, in fact, who He claimed to be. And at some point then, we have to decide to walk with Him in faith, trust, walking, following. Not always demanding that we understand. I, understand, I, I get it. Life is scary. So are health care issues. I get that. I've got it in my family. I'm 52. I will not live another 50 years. Nobody wants to die, in case you're not clear, except somebody who has psychologically lost their edge. God made us with a will to live. Dying is a scary thing, even if you know where you're going. Death has a small sting, but its great sting is gone for a child of God. It's still scary. Reality, I have to choose to trust God with my life and my death, or not. There's a new blood test. I understand somebody in East Texas is doing it, and that blood test will tell you what most likely you will die of. I don't think I want to know. Actually, I think I already do know. I don't want it confirmed. You're killing me with your food. I never, 
it's closed, so I can say this, but I, I want to be careful. I never really liked Fuller's Buffet. I really like Mr. Ray's. A lot. And you can't live on deep-fried everything. Eventually, you will cease to breathe. Or, you'll, or Kevin Hudson will be your best friend. I mean, the, the truth is, if God's God... I have to trust him with my business. I have to trust him with my politics. I have to trust him with my government. I have to trust him with my wife. I have to trust him with my kids. I have to trust him with things that are scary. I have to trust him. If he's God, I do not have the right to demand that he explain everything to me. Who am I to demand that? If he's God, and I do have questions for him, it should be on my face before him asking those questions. And then he taps me on the head and says, little boy, you don't know where the wind blows. It's the same answer, but I want you to understand that Nicodemus is coming today to negotiate a relationship with God himself and the we. He's coming in as a representative so that he can go back and teach what Jesus teaches, and he, as the teacher, can meld this. And Jesus is saying to him, unless a man is born again, there's no kingdom. It is not uncommon today to hear someone say, I refuse to believe in a God who, and fill in the blank. Who won't accept people as they are if they have same-sex attraction? Or, I refuse to believe in a God who would choose somebody over another. I refuse to believe in a God. Let's play for a second. Let's just play out. If you ever say, I refuse to believe in a God who, and you fill in that blank, you are no longer bowing to God. You are manipulating a relationship with the Holy One, demanding that He behave a certain way in order for you to be one of His faithful followers. After all, you're doing Him a favor by giving every week, right? When did we come up with this idea? And that's what Nicodemus is doing here. Nicodemus is coming to negotiate. He's coming to figure it out. And when Jesus goes off on the kingdom of God is not about Judaism, it's not about the Holy of Holies, it's not about all this. In fact, I got news for you. I'm going to rip that temple, the, set, the cloth in the temple that separates the holy and holies, the day of preparation. I'm going to rip that thing in two. And people standing there, they're not going to die. It's going to be incredible because the new temple is me and you come to me as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm the new temple. I'm the one who saves people. Not you. Not sacrifices. I'm the sacrifice. You come to me. And Nicodemus' response is, all right, now I know some of you are going, Mark, you're waxing too deep. I don't get it. And how are you getting all this? Look at the next phrase that you are familiar with. Jesus, in verse 13, tells Nicodemus why he should trust God, even if he doesn't understand being born again. Because the Son of Man has come down from heaven. Nobody else you know has gone to heaven and come back. I'm the only one. In verse 14, he goes on. Nicodemus, just listen to me for a second. I'm adding that. But that's the mojo here. As Moses, pay attention, Nick. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, he would have known that. Wow, that snake, that was a weird story. Yeah, and he's thinking. Remember the story? All the people are being bit by serpents as the result of their rebelling against God. And these are poisonous serpents, and they're dying left and right. And God told Moses to lift up a bronze serpent on a pole. And while they are being bitten, the snakes didn't go away like that was some sort of anti-snake venom. While they're being bitten, if they would look at that snake on the pole, they would live. So while they're being bitten, trust that God will take care of their poison in their veins. They look to that pole. Uh, just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In other words, you may not understand how this is going to work. You don't understand the antidote. You don't. I'm telling you, just like the snakes didn't leave just because the, the serpent was on the pole, but people lived, 
So anyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. It's a question of faith. For this is how God loved the world. This is the verse you know. When Jesus, okay, so let's do the King James because you're more familiar with that. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. You know what's really cool here? Nicodemus' statement at the beginning was, we know that God sent you. Jesus now answers the question, let me tell you why He sent me. For the Father so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him, like the serpent on the pole, will live. They won't be perish, they won't perish, they'll have eternal life in the, in the uh, new living. For God loved the world so much that He gave or sent His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus, that verse that everybody loves, Jesus is explaining salvation to him. I know you don't get it. I know you don't understand how to get in the Holy Spirit and be birthed of the Holy Spirit. So let me tell you how that happens. Just like you don't understand what happened with the serpent in the wilderness, they're going to put me on a pole, and you're going to have to, by faith, look at me while sin is still stinging you, and you're going to have to trust that I'm the answer to your sin problem. And anybody who does that, anyone, anyone in any place in the world, circumcised or uncircumcised, Gentile or, or Jew, it doesn't matter. Anyone who believes in him, me, won't perish but have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. You see, the context of this is that God is explaining to him how you enter the kingdom of God, and it's only through Jesus. Pay attention here, because Nicodemus already identified Jesus sent from God. Jesus is simply explaining what he was sent to do. Verse 17, God sent his son into the world, that same word. Nick, you asked about, you said, you know, I'm sent, so here's the deal. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, which is exactly what the Hebrews want. The Hebrew wants the, the, the Messiah to judge the rest of the world. You Gentile dogs, you beautiful Jews. It's nationalism. Be careful how high you wave your flag. Be careful. God is not a gun-toting East Texan who served in Vietnam. The question isn't whether God's on our side. The question is whether we are on His side. Be careful, my family. It's easy to be seduced into thinking God will bless our nation when He only wants a relationship with you. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in Him. So in other words, you don't even have to worry about judgment. But anyone who doesn't believe in Him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love darkness more than light, for their actions were evil. Unsaved believers. People who acknowledge Him as God, but still want to serve their flesh. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that sins will be exposed. Why aren't you in church, my friend, watching on the internet? I know that you say it's because we're hypocrites, but maybe it's because you don't want to be exposed. If you want to know why I'm in church, it's because God told me to be here. Oh, pastor, you're just selling church. No, I'm not. Hebrews clearly says don't forsake the gathering together. doesn't matter if it's Sunday morning, Wednesday night, a gathering of believers for Bible study, but the question you have to answer in your heart is, is it possible to love God and not obey Him? Whoa, preacher, what? I mean, if you love your wife and you're sleeping with everybody else's wife, there's a, love, there's, a, there's a weird definition of love there. If you love your husband but you're slap, slapping him around every night at the dinner table, there's a weird definition of love there. 
If you're saying I love God because He saved me, but you don't obey Him or walk with Him or encourage other believers, you have every right to question whether or not you even love Him. That's just a, that's just a, I mean, I do this, so super guilty. Yeah, so, hey, Dolores, how are you? I'm good, Mark. It's good to talk to you. Hey, Dolores, I love you. And I hang up the phone, and it's just kind of a sign off. It means I have an affinity for you, and I'm glad we're close and we know each other. But if I really love Dolores, I'm going to bring her popcorn every day until she has a heart problem, and then I'm going to bring her vegetables. Verse 20, all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for their sins will be exposed. Verse 21, but those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Those of you who are legalistic and doing right because that's what Baptists do or religious people, you're doing it for the wrong reason. And God doesn't trust you because your heart is wrong. The truth is we do it because we want to obey and submit and humble and we love God. Verse 22, then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Jordan, uh, Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there baptizing people. And we'll get into that next week. But in case you're questioning, the disciples had a lot of questions for Jesus at this point. That's why they spent some time there. A lot of questions. Wait till you see how John reacts to Jesus' presence. Nick, you want eternal life? I'm your guy. You want to see the kingdom of God? I'm your guy. I was not sent, however, from the Father just to solve the problems of Israel or the temple or even explain how my Father runs His universe. I actually didn't even come to condemn the world. It's already condemned. I came to seek and save those who want salvation. Anyone, Gentile, Jew, rich, poor, gay, straight, anybody, anybody who knows that they're a sinner and need redemption, I'm their guy. Those who truly believe that I am what they seek, they will find the kingdom of God. Those who come to me and bow the knee to me, those who repent of their sins and turn to me, if they believe that and they come to me because I'm the light, they'll see the kingdom of God. However, if you continue to live in the way that you're living, if you continue to sort of like me in a believe with a small b sort of way, but seek your own will, you'll never see the kingdom of God. It's not complicated. Because what happens at the moment of salvation is you are born from above. And, John, or, and Paul the apostle in Galatians explains how you know that. You know that you are a child born from above because the fruit of the Spirit's presence is in your life. Love joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. And there's a lot of women for a lot of years who've been in women's prayer meetings that do a lot of gossiping, and that is not one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, the truth is, if, if you've been living in the flesh all these years and you're scared that maybe you're going to go to hell, you have every right to fear that. Yeah, but you're a pastor. You should tell me because I prayed at five years of age. I'm okay. That's not my place to say that. If you are living in the flesh, if you are feeding your flesh, if you are totally living self-absorbed, if you hate the children of God because the church is full of hypocrites, but you say you love God, you have every right to question about whether or not you'll see the kingdom of God. It is not the job of a pastor to help you feel good about your sin. It's not the job of your spouse. It's not your own. The question is, why do I keep indulging in my flesh? If you love God, you run to the light. You are so thankful for what He's done for you, you live for Him. If you don't, don't claim to be something that's not true. See, the problem with us is there's too many people lying. That's why 70 to 80% of people in America claim to be Christians, but they are still very pro-abortion. That's why we are so apt to build a wall so fast without weeping tears. Because we're not concerned about the souls of the people on the other side of the fence. First we build a fence, then we worry about their souls. 
That's not how Jesus taught us to be. You understand that Jesus came and he was a revolutionary. The first three or four weeks of his ministry were pretty safe. But then all of a sudden he enters the tabernacle, the temple and he makes a case. And you know what? The problem is it isn't an American case. It isn't a conservative case. It isn't even a moral case. It's a trust case. The question isn't your, whether you're good or moral or Baptist or assemblies of God or evangelical. The question is whether or not Jesus is your everything. If he's not... Go back to the cross. So are you saying I need to be saved again? I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying if you like darkness more than light, Jesus addressed that with Nicodemus. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Mark, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for God? Is fellowship our joy or is it negotiable? Are we raising... I, I know we're Christians, but are we raising our children and our families in homes that honor Jesus, that focus Jesus, that make Him their everything? Your kids will one day have a crisis. And if, you don't, if they don't observe you believing that He is the solution to your crisis, and I don't mean the one who's going to give you what you want, but the solution to your crisis, your trust in Him, why would they ever believe this? Bad things are going to happen. The question is, are you on God's team when they do? And there you have it. It's, it's not complicated. And I know that some of you are going, man, I never heard this text in light of that. I just like John 3.16. There's a lot of verses I just like, as long as you don't read the verses around them. They're very nice. They make very good memes on the Internet. But he didn't just say that. He's talking to a guy who's very religious and seeking. And I believe it turns out well for Nicodemus. More on that to come. But I'm very challenged by this because it's time for Mark to get beyond believing and, and put my trust in him. Or not. I'm going to. Who will join me? Who will join me? Who will join me? It's scary. We are out of control, even when we think we are in control. I know that some of you struggle big time with drugs and alcohol and same-sex attraction and opposite-sex attraction and pornography. We all got our thing, every person in this room, except Julie. She has no struggles. We all have our thing. It's time to give that thing to Jesus, really. It is. We don't negotiate that thing. We give it to him. And we say, if I have to live sad, anxious, lonely, wishing, scared, if I have to live with that emotion the rest of my life because of this thing, but I trust you, even if God chooses not to save us from your hand, O Nebuchadnezzar, I will not bow. That is the invitation of Jesus through all the Gospels. You're going to see it. It's not soft. It's not easy. It's not an Easter egg hunt. It's just the truth. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody comes to my Father except through me. 
Well, that's kind of self-serving and arrogant. When you're God, you can be that. The question is not whether or not that's true. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Dear Lord, I pray that you have spoken to each person listening today and in this community and every church that has opened your word. We don't need a community revival. We need a revival of our hearts and, and you will take care of the community. Help us to trust you even in the areas we don't like your plan. One thing you've got to say about the disciples is I have a feeling this was a rough few days, but they did not walk away. So we may have a rough few days or months or years. May we be like those guys who didn't always understand, but they did not walk away. And for those, Father, listening that do not know you, I mean, they know you, but they don't know you. May today be the day of spiritual rebirth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I mean, no, know him, if you have not put your trust in him, I would love to introduce you to him. God bless you guys.